podcast. Okay, welcome everyone to Guide to Existence. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the third parsha in the Torah, Lech Lecha, where we are introduced to Abraham. We actually were introduced to Abraham in last week's parsha. And we're going to learn tonight about the first mitzvah given to the first Jew. So it's going to be very exciting. And hopefully in that mitzvah will be a message for all the generations of what the core meaning of Judaism is. But first, first, a brief interlude. I want to just start off by telling you just an introduction to Judaism, which is the first time that God speaks to the first Jew, which is the beginning of this week's Parsha, okay? And I think you guys will enjoy it. I'll do it quick. The Parsha begins Lech. Lecha. Does anyone know what Lech Lecha means? Uh, <clears throat> Avital. <laughs> yes! Walk to you or... No, it's to you. Oh. So Lech means go. Lecha means to you. The, the letter Lamed in Hebrew either means to or for. So it either means go to yourself or go for yourself. And then the rest of the verse is very, very puzzling. It says, go to you or go from, for you from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Does anyone see anything wrong with this verse? With the three things that Abraham is told to go away from. From his land, from his birthplace, from his father's house. Okay, good. Right, essentially, essentially. But if you think about the order of those three things, anyone bothered? Go from your land, from your birthplace, which maybe is your city or your neighborhood, and from your father's house. Okay, excellent. It could have just said go from your land and that would have included all the other stuff. What else? The land is the country, is like the nation. Abraham was born in the land of, in, in um, well, it's, it's slightly debated about where he was born, but essentially a, f for intensive purposes of this conversation, he was born in Ur-Kazdim, which was in Iraq. And, uh, yeah. Anyone, if I were to tell you, Steph Goldberg, to go to Israel, and I wanted to break down the steps, what would I tell you? Okay. I'm, I get you. I get you. But if I were to break down the steps of leaving your house to go to Israel, wh what locations would I tell you to leave?
Bingo. It's out of order. Welcome, Juliana. It says, leave your land, your birthplace, your father's house. It's the wrong order. It should really say, leave your house. Right, Steph? Go outside of your house. Get in your car. Go to Newark Airport. Leave the environs of New Jersey or of your city. And then leave your country. So why is it in the wrong order? To make the question stronger, at the end of last week's Parsha, it says that Avram and his father left Iraq. They left Ur Kasdan. By the way, Ur still exists. I, I spoke to a, uh, a Jewish Iraqi war vet who was there. And um, uh, he, so he left already in last week's Parsha from Iraq, and he settled in a place called Haran, which was in Syria. So he already left his birthplace. So why is God telling him, leave your land and your birthplace and your father's house? He already did. So I believe the answer is as follows. He's not telling him to leave physically. He already left physically. What he's telling him is leave intellectually. Leave behind the values of your society. And if I were to tell you to, to, to go away from everything that you know, right? So the easiest thing to leave, which is still pretty hard, is the values of your society, right? Go away from your land. First, we can get rid of the external values, like American values. We all have values that we've inherited from the media and from Coca-Cola, right? We all value, to some degree, relaxation, time is money, productivity, earn it yourself, independence, or freedom. We've all in inherited certain American qualities. Then deeper, go away from your, for your birthplace, the values of your community. Those are even deeper. Those are more ingrained if you have a community. And finally, even the values of your father's house, even what you inherited in your home. Why? Because to be a Jew means to challenge everything. If you want to find truth, if you want to come to me, says God, you have to go away from everything that you've ever experienced, everything that you've ever known, everything that you've ever been taught, and find it for yourself. That is the message of Judaism. And that's why Avraham was called, how do you say Hebrew in Hebrew? Or Russian, for that matter? Ivri, right? Ivri means the one from over there. Avraham was called Avraham Ha'ivri, the one who, over, the word over in Hebrew is the same as the English word, over. It means to cross over. Abraham was called the one from over there because he crossed over from Iraq, over the Tigris and Euphrates rivers into the land of Canaan. But the Talmud says it doesn't mean that. It means also metaphorically that Abraham the, crossed over to an entirely different dimension of thinking. The whole world believed in a certain ideology, idolatry, many gods. Abraham crossed over to a new plane of reality of the world of one God. So Jews from the beginning of time have been fighting against the man. We fight against the status quo. We, cha quo. we challenge authority. That's what it means to be Jewish. We brought down empires. We brought down the Soviet Union, right? We wouldn't take it. A couple of Jews have said, we want to go, we want out, right? Take down empires and we start revolutions, whether it's communism, socialism, whether it's uh, psycho psychological revolution of Sigmund Freud, whether it is Einstein, the physics relativity revolution, or all Jews who are at the forefront of science and art and music and fashion, Jews are constantly challenging authority. And 
that's the message to the first Jew is go to yourself. If you want to find yourself, you have to be willing to let go of everything you've ever known to be true and be open to discovery. The greatest barrier to discoveries, what's the greatest barrier to knowledge? It's knowledge. Yourself. Knowledge. If you're, if you're, um, if your cup is over is already full, you can't fill it with anything else, right? Famous story of the guy who goes to the Zen master, and the Zen he says, "I want to learn," and the Zen master says, "Fill up my cup with tea, and I, and I'll tell you when to stop." And he starts pouring and pouring, and then he and he says, "Should I stop?" He says, "No, keep pouring," and the cup starts overflowing, and he's like, "Can, can I stop?" He's like, "No, keep pouring." The table's flooding with water, and he says, "All right, I'm I'm done. I poured it all out." And the master says. He, he says, why, why is my cup overflowing? He says, because it was full already. He said, that's, that's why I can't teach you. If you want to learn, you have to empty yourself of everything you've ever known. It says that one of the rabbis, when he came to Israel from Babylon, he prayed that he would forget all of his Torah learning so that he could start over fresh in the land of Israel because it's a different reality. So the land that I will show you, God doesn't tell him where he's going. He says, you just have to go. And the reason is, is because it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Israel is not a state, it's a state of mind. And we're all on that journey. We just have to realize that we're on the journey, that the purpose of the journey, the destination is you. Go to yourself, find yourself. And what's the point of it all? It's for you, go for yourself. It's that we should have the ultimate pleasure that's possible in this universe. That is the purpose of Judaism, the purpose of mitzvahs is to gain ultimate infinite pleasure. So, let us begin with the first mitzvah. Does anyone know what the first mitzvah is given to the first Jew? Yes, Yuliana. That was the excellent, that was the first mitzvah given to mankind. The first mitzvah given to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. What was the first mitzvah given to the first Jew, Abraham? Circumcision, bris, bris milah circumcision and some of you may have heard our discussions about this in the past but let's start over fresh okay to forget everything we've ever learned so the question is it's very interesting that julia pointed out that the first mitzvah given to mankind is to be fruitful and multiply and the first mitzvah given to the first jew is also involves that part of the body very interesting right very interesting. Why is that? So let's ask a bunch of questions. I want to start with a bunch of questions. We'll see if we can answer them. Okay? Questions about bris. Does anyone have any questions about bris? So the mitzvah of bris meal is to cut off the foreskin on the boy at the age of eight days. Eight days. It And if you can't do it on the eighth day, you cannot do it before the eighth day. You have to do it on the eighth day or after the eighth day. It's not kosher if it's before the eighth day. So people that get a bris in the hospital is not kosher. Additionally, it has to be done by a moil, by a rabbi, by a, a God-fearing Jew who does it for the sake of mitzvah, not a doctor who does it for the sake of cleanliness. So I actually have a, a student in the Soviet Union. A lot of Jews did not get uh, circumcision because it was it was forbidden and it was very taboo. And um, there were Jews that risked their lives to do bris in the Soviet Union. You know, they could get arrested for doing it. I know a, I met a doctor, a Russian doctor who used to who was a urologist and he used to give brisim to people and claim that they needed a surgery and he would always carry two bottles of vodka to give to the guards if anyone found them. And um, 
he, he when I, I actually met him, he was he was he was conducting an adult bris for like a 60-year-old Russian Jew in, in in Israel. So I have a student who was very against getting a bris, did not have one at birth, and was really wasn't comfortable with the idea for many reasons. And uh, so I really, I kept putting my heart into these classes about bris. I always tried to bring it up whenever I had a chance, and uh, and then he finally agreed to do it. And I, I was there, and it was it was an amazing experience, because it's really entering into the the Jewish legacy, the Jewish people. Why, why, why is this the covenant? What's a bris? The word bris means a pact, a relationship. Why is this the place where we show our relationship with God? Why is it on that place, ladies? Don't use your imagination. Why? Does that make any sense? You know, like. You get married, you put a ring ring on your finger, you know, maybe that makes more sense. And and another question is, why don't women have it? Don't women have a bris with God? Why don't they need a bris? Why don't they need a, a covenant and pact with God? <laughs> I know, I heard your question. Another question, another question is, why the eighth day? Why not at birth? Or why not at age 13, like Yishmael? The Arabs, right? They do it at age 13, at least traditionally, right? Yes, convert, converts to Judaism have to do it. Yes. I, I know a guy who uh, got it at like age 80, an older older Russian Jew who became religious, right? So um, why on the eighth day? And um, I have another question. Why are we making our pact with God with like, it's like bloody a little bit, right? It's kind of barbaric. You got to cut off a piece of your body to make your pact with God. What's up with that? What? <laughs> ah, Jews were made on the eighth day. That's a good. That's interesting. Avital, stay, stay posted. Okay. So, so there is an ex there is an understanding that the baby has to go through a Shabbos before getting the bris, but why? Why specifically a Shabbos? No, baby doesn't have any choice. All right, a few more questions that I'll, I want to ask before we try to answer these questions. Um, it says that. Um, Abraham, the Talmud says, kept every mitzvah in the Torah before the Torah was given. Before he was commanded, it says that he kept every mitzvah. That's what the Talmud says. But there's a big problem. Because he didn't keep this one. So for some reason, let's just assume that he was keeping Shabbos and kosher and uh, uh, putting on tefillin. Let's say he was doing all those mitzvahs somehow. He intuited them spiritually without the commandments, without the Torah. He intuited the spiritual meaning of all the mitzvahs, except for bris. Because he didn't get the commandment for bris until he was 99 years old. So why? Why didn't he do bris on his own? Involuntary. The other, on the contrary, the others were voluntary. He wasn't commanded to do them. This is the only one that he didn't have a commandment. He chose to do them. He felt that they were the right thing to do. But this one, he was actually commanded. So, yeah.
<laughs> we'll come back to you. Ah. Okay. Okay. So there's perhaps there's a value to things being commanded that the Talmud says, right? We, we talked about we talked about this before, right? Somebody who is commanded to do a mitzvah is actually greater than someone that does it of their own volition. Does that sound counterintuitive? It does right? What's better, to get your wife flowers because you love her, or because she told you get me flowers, or your husband? Or ladies, if you ask your husband, what's better? He gets it because he thought about you or because you said, get me flowers. What's greater? Obviously, right? Because he thought about you. Wrong! That's actually wrong. That's incorrect. Because when he thought about you, why is he getting you flowers? Because <laughs> he probably did something wrong. Because he's inspired. He's thinking about you. He loves you, right? But there's a part of him that wants to do it. But when you ask him to get him flowers, why are you doing it? So why is he doing it now? Is it because it has nothing to do with him? It's just because he wants to make you happy, right? So when you're com, what? Or fear? Then that's not not a good relationship. <laughs> it shouldn't be fear based. So uh, I'm getting a tap on my shoulder. Um, so. Doing things out of love is uh, much better than doing things out of fear, but doing things because you're commanded is the greatest reason to do things because then it's a hundred percent for the other person. Okay, so now, yes. So that's a great question. It sounds like, like he intuited it somehow. He just felt that it was spiritually the right thing to do, right? But definitely on a lower level than had he been commanded to do them. And the word mitzvah means commandment. So it's kind of uh, paradoxical that he purposely, intentionally, by will, on his own volition, did something called a commandment that he wasn't commanded to do. Okay, but not for now. But again, the question is, why not bris? And finally, the question I would like to ask is... If there's this part of the body that's supposed to be removed, right? That the male is born with this extra skin. And don't get stuck in that it's better for you health-wise and all that. That's not, that's not, it might be an additional advantage. But it's, the question is, if, if God intended it that, that man should have a bris. So what's the obvious question? Yeah, why would he just born... With that piece missing, then it's all good. Like, God, like, you messed up. You made an extra thing. Like, you know, the, just make them the way they're supposed to be originally. So, so this is a, good, a big question. Why? What's the purpose of us having to do that? So, let's, um, let's try to answer these questions, okay? And uh, my answers may be a little bit convoluted because I didn't write anything down this week. I thought I knew this one. Yes. Yes. If a Jew gets a non-kosher bris, they have a, a medical circumcision. So lots and lots of people have to do this if they become more religious later on. Is um, 
they they perform something called a toughest dambris, which is that they have a moil just kind of um, pierce them with like a little needle and draw a little bit of blood. So, <laughs> yeah, it can be fixed just with a little bit of pain. So, <laughs> yeah, so the mitzvah is to do it on the eighth day, but you can't, it's kosher for the rest of one's life. If you do it before the eighth day, it's not kosher though. So let's 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 try to jump into this, okay? We'll, I'll try to keep as much order as possible um, to answer these questions. So what's the significance of? Let's start with that of the eighth day. So some of you probably have heard me talk about this before, but in Kabbalah, numbers are very significant, and the number seven in Kabbalah signifies what? The world of nature, the world. The world was built in seven days. Seven is a number which signifies the completion of the physical world. How do we see that? Because in our world, the number seven is very significant. There are seven continents. There are seven seas. There are seven distinct notes in a musical scale, in a Western musical scale. Seven colors in a rainbow, distinct colors in a rainbow. Seven orifices in the body. Seven... Harry Potter books. Seven is a number that signifies completion. And the world's created in seven days. The seventh dimension is actually the female dimension. We've talked about this before. Seven is coincides with the Shekhinah, Shabbos. Shabbos is the Shekhinah, celebrating the, the divine presence, the feminine presence of God, which is present in the world. That six days God created a physical world that was a shell, of physical pieces and the seventh day he infused that physicality with spirituality we see this in the representation of a cube what is a cube made up of how many sides no that's a square uh no <laughs> a cube is a three-dimensional not four-dimensional three-dimensional shape no any mathematicians here a cube is made up of six distinct pieces, six squares. You put six squares together, you get a cube. But there's actually a seventh dimension. A cube is not a cube without the seventh dimension because six squares don't make a cube unless they are held together, equally distant apart with space in between. That inner space is the seventh dimension. That's the soul of the world. That is the divine presence that God infused in the world on the seventh day. So Shabbos is celebrating the soul of the world. And that's feminine. Because feminine in Kabbalah refers to the inner space. The vessel that receives. Right? The, 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 the one that receives the blessing. That's the feminine. The feminine receives and gives back. It's Mother Earth, so to speak. Right? So... The seventh dimension is the feminine, and it represents the completion of the physical world. The eighth dimension represents the supernatural, which is beyond the physical world. That's God who is beyond the world. When we talk about God and the Shekhinah, there's a Kabbalistic meditation that you're supposed to have and, and recite before doing any mitzvah. 
And that says, Liyached Yudke Vavavke, to unite the Yudhe of God's name with the Vavhe of God's name. I mean, the first two letters of God's name is the last two letters of God's name. The first two letters signifying the mind of God, God who is beyond the world. The Vav He signifying the God who's in the world. Really, the, the last He is the Shechina, and the Vav is the connector that connects God in the world with God that's beyond the world. That's the human being who's connecting the two. And Liyached Kudshabrichu, to unite the Holy One, Vashkinte, with the Divine Presence. It's the two aspects of God. The God is hidden with the God is revealed. The God is who is beyond with the God who is within. The God who surrounds with the God who is imminent within. So that that is our intention in every mitzvah. Is to bring bring together spirituality with physicality. The hidden spirituality that's within and revealing it, bringing it out. So... The eighth dimension is the supernatural. That's why there's eight nights of Hanukkah. Hanukkah represents the miraculous. And that's why a bris is on the eighth day. Because the message with the bris is to go beyond the world, to go beyond nature. The bris itself in Kabbalah, right? We said corresponds to the idea of relationship. The sixth dimension in Kabbalah corresponds to the bris, actually. The actual part of the body. And that has to do with intimate connection, uh, relationship. And the male who is connected to the sixth dimension, because male Adam was created on the sixth day, Eve was created later on in the sixth day. She's much closer to the seventh dimension, right? So Adam has to transcend six. Six is is related to the idea of relationship, but it's also related. It's closer to the world of nature, of the animal kingdom. Animals are created on the sixth day, also. A man who's created much more animalistic than female, right? Men are much more testosterone, hairier, more physical, more aggressive. Have to go beyond the world in order to connect to spirituality. They have to go outside the world to the eighth dimension. That's the idea of Torah. Torah corresponds to the eighth dimension, and then bring back that spirituality back down into seven to meet together in the union of 7.5, which is uh, the, the year Abraham was, 75, when God spoke to him. All right, 7.5, numerical value of Kohen, priest, is the idea of bringing together physicality and spirituality. That's the job of, that's our role in Judaism. Okay, if that was too deep, then I apologize. Too deep for me also. All right, but let's go simpler. Okay, why? So the bris takes place on the eighth day. What's the message of bris? So there's a story in the Talmud that a Roman came to Rabbi Akiva, and he said to him, who makes, I think she said to him actually, I think it was a, woman, a Roman matriarch, said to Rabbi Akiva, who makes better stuff, God or man? And what do you guys think the answer would be? God. God makes better stuff, right? God created a world. We can't make a world. And Rabbi Akiva said, you're wrong. Man makes better stuff. Why? Because God creates wheat kernels. And what does man do with that? We turn it into bread. God creates grapes. We turn it into wine. God creates olives. We turn it into olive oil. We have the ability to take the raw materials that God gave and perfect it and make it even better. So the Roman was 
about to attack Rabbi Akiva and say, so why do you guys do circumcision? Are you saying God makes a good world? So why are you tampering with the perfect world? And that was an issue that the Greeks and the Romans had with circumcision. The human being is the perf perfect form of beauty. The ancient Greeks said that the male nude was the greatest specimen of human beauty. So how can you tamper with the perfect human form? And the Jews say, you're wrong. The human being was created imperfect. We have to take the raw material and transform it and refine it and uplift it. That's the message of bris, is we have to perfect the physical. It's not enough as to take what you were given and say, listen, Rabbi, what can I do? I'm an angry person. I'm a lazy person. I'm a selfish person. That's just the way I am. No, there's no such thing as that's just the way I am. We have to take what we were given and make it better. Okay, so now, what's the message of bris? An additional message of bris? What's the most, we talked about this two weeks ago, what's the most God-like thing a human being can ever do? Have kids, create, become a creator. The act of creation is literally taking spirituality a soul and bring it into a body, into physicality. That's the mission of the Jewish people is to bring spirituality into physicality, to uplift the physical world. So God says the place of my pact with you, my relationship with you, human beings, Jewish people, is going to be in the most physical part of the most physical species of human being. That's where I want to have a relationship with you, in the physical. And I want to utilize what could take you into a world of physical pleasure away from spirituality. Because all religions, besides Judaism, say if you want to be spiritual, you have to become celibate. You have to control your body, control your urges. Says Judaism, says God, I want to, I want to be with you in your physicality. Because that's the goal, is to bring God into the physical pleasure, into the physical world. To become God-like through the physical through transcending physical by bringing spirituality into physical, into physicality. Does that make sense? So the mitzvah, you have to do it. I'm not, you're not going to be born perfect. You have to perfect yourself. And why is it that Abraham could do all other mitzvahs, but not this one? Why couldn't Abraham do this one? It's Abraham figured out all the other mitzvahs on his own, except for this one. So I think... An answer. By the way, there are over a hundred answers to this question. An answer that I thought of could be as follows, right? In in, um, in Jewish marriage, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, it cannot be coerced. Did you know that? You can't force someone to get married in Judaism. It's not a kosher marriage. Why? No. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I mean, your parents can strongly urge you to do something, just like Russian parents can urge their children to do stuff, and the children often have to say yes. It's you have to consent. If you do not consent, if you don't say I do willingly, it's not a kosher wedding. All right, you have to both choose it, male and female. Why is that? For sure. 
For sure, you have to see each other. Talmud says you have to look at each other and be attracted to each other. And if you don't look at each other, it's not. It could be it's not a kosher wedding. Uh, arranged marriages, your parents can ha- weigh in heavily, but you gotta meet. You gotta meet and say yes. <laughs> Back in the day, there was no a Jewish wedding it has to be that they both meet and they both willingly choose to say yes. So. I'm talking in the biblical times. <laughs> so, why is that? Why does it have to be consensual? Why does a why does a, wed- a marriage have to be consensual? <laughs> okay, so maybe it would be um it. <laughs> Okay, Julia, Julia, you're saying psychologically, Julia says that it does, she doesn't think it would be a good relationship if it was forced. But um, happens to be, by the way, by the way, New York Times article that uh, interviewed arranged marriages in India and found that arranged marriages report much higher levels of happiness in the relationship than so-called Western love marriages. We can understand that. Um, we could another time, but I mean, it's very simple. Why? Because when you're in arranged marriage, you it's up to you to make it work, right? You're not expecting it to be fireworks because you don't even know each other. So it's up to you to put in the effort. You have no expectations. But in a so-called love marriage, you're already at the pinnacle and you're expecting it to stay that way and it won't. So it's, it can only go downhill, whereas arranged marriages report higher and higher levels of happiness every year. But um, the reason, perhaps, some, you, Steph, what were you going to say? Okay, that that somehow if there's not a union of, of liking each other, right? But again, Judaism believes that you can learn to like people. You can learn to love. Love is a choice, right? It's not something that you just get lucky and have. It's something you have to build. But I think the answer is is because the whole idea of relationship is that it's consensual. That's a relationship, is that it's two people choosing to give to each other. That's the definition of relationship. If it's one-sided, that's not a relationship. So all the other mitzvahs, Abraham could technically do because he really felt it or was inspired or intuited it. But the mitzvah that represents all other mitzvahs, the paradigm of all mitzvahs, the first mitzvah that given to the Jewish people, to the first Jew, is the mitzvah of relationship. That's what a bris is. A bris is I'm making a, a relationship with you, eternal relationship with you and all of your offspring, that I will be with you in the physical. That's something that we both have to be in on. It has to be a consensual commandment, not just that Abraham wanted to do it, not just because you're buying flowers for your spouse because you're inspired, but because your spouse says, please do this for me. That's true relationship. So, so now, last but not least, where were we? Um, what, else, what did we miss? Did we answer all the questions that we set out to answer? Oh! Yes, why not women? So why don't women need a bris? Why don't women need a bris? So I, I believe essentially the answer is that, as we mentioned, that women re- correspond to the seventh dimension. Shabbos is a time of perfection, perfection of the physical. The women, 
represents that dimension which is closer to their unique spiritual purpose right women are by instinct they're instinctually programmed towards spirituality instinctually women instinctually intuit relationship connection child rearing it's a maternal instinct you can't do anything about it of course there's some women that have it more than others but in by nature you are programmed to want to connect to want to grow it's why the talmud says that we learn the laws of prayer from kana from from a woman the talmud says that all the four mothers were on a higher spiritual level were more had more prophecy than the men than the forefathers right we learn the talmud says that women are intuitively connected to the idea of prayer so men on the other hand are by nature completely disconnected from spirituality a natural man cares only about steak sleep and sex right a natural man cares only about is individualistic he's aggressive and he's incredibly physical and territorial men don't communicate by nature they don't talk to each other right they only talk around something else like a barbecue or a beer or a football game right they don't like get together to talk right because it's not we're not programmed that way you want to read more about that men are from mars women are from venus it's a good book to try to understand a little bit more about how men and women are a completely different species but the male because of the male's intrinsic connection to physicality needs to transcend his nature in order to connect the spirituality by jumping up to the eighth dimension that's the world beyond the physical but the female on her own is intuitively connected to her role as a spiritual nurturer and communi community builder so therefore the female doesn't need a bris because she is created closer to her in spiritual purpose and that's why men make a blessing every day thank you for not making me a woman which as controversial as that sounds it actually makes a lot of sense because you know it can be taken out of context as men are misogynistic but that's not the case because there are actually three blessings that a man makes in the morning everyone makes every jew makes one is thank you for not making me a non-jew thank you for not making me a slave and thank you for not making me a woman now that sounds very derogatory women on the other hand say thank you for making me according to your will sounds that sounds much better right that's a great question yes they do they do make that it's a great question converts make also make the blessing thank you for not making me a non-jew because and, and essentially they they're no they're no longer a non-jew so the question is why why do we do all what would be a better way to make these blessings in the morning if you were writing the sitter great thank you for making me a jew thank you for making me a why don't we why do we say it in the negative negative? and why can't women say that too why say it in the negative it's much better to say things in the positive thank you for making me who i am thank you for making me a jew Thank you for making me free. So, okay. Sometimes, sometimes by you can appreciate what you have more when you look at what you what when you look at it uh, uh, see what you don't what you could have had what the alternative could be. But the 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 um, the medieval commentaries. I'm not talking about apologetics here. Okay. The medieval commentaries explain that the reason we can't say it in the positive is because the three these three things are three categories of human beings. Okay, and the reason they're listed in that order is because each of these categories has a different number of mitzvahs. 
right? Non-Jews have how many mitzvahs? Seven. What about slaves? In the time, biblical times, there is a concept of slavery, right? Captives of war who would be actually quasi-Jews. They would be semi-converted. They would have to keep certain mitzvahs. How many mitzvahs did a, non uh, did a slave have to keep? According to the Torah, they have to keep all the negative mitzvahs in the Torah, all the don'ts, all the thou shalt nots. 365. They had 365 mitzvahs. And the, um, and women, how many mitzvahs do women have to keep? <laughs> there are three special rabbinic mitzvahs that women keep. Women have to keep all 365 don'ts, and they have to keep all, uh, not all the do's, but all the do's that aren't time-bound except for eating uh, matzah on Passover and, um, and um, Shabbos, which are, which are time-bound. So women have to keep a lot more. And then, no, women do have to keep Shabbos, even though Shabbos is time-bound. Okay? So the Talmud said, so the commentaries explain that we're saying it in this order because it's an order of obligations. Now, really what a man should say is, thank you for giving me the most amount of mitzvahs. Right? Because men have 613, not every man, but men have the capacity for the most amount of mitzvahs. Right? Women have the second amount of mitzvahs than a, a, a non-Jewish uh, non servant slave has a whole bunch of mitzvahs, and a non-Jew has seven. So really we're saying, thank you for giving me all these mitzvahs. But we can't say thank you for giving me all these mitzvahs. Why? Why is it really hard to say thank you for giving me a whole bunch of mitzvahs? Because <laughs> they're time consuming and I guess if you don't have the right attitude, I guess one could see them as being annoying, but they're not. They're meant to connect us to greater levels of spirituality and connection. But because more responsibility means more opportunity to fail. Right? Greater, greater, with great power comes great responsibility. So the mitzvahs are amazing opportunities to refine ourselves and to grow and to connect. But they're, they're also great opportunities to not. The more obligations you have, the more likely you are to fail in your mission. So the Talmud says that we can't say thank you for creating us and giving us mitzvahs because it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, there are amazing opportunities if we accomplish our task. On the other hand, it's an incredible task, which we very well may not succeed in. So the Talmud says, the commentaries explain that we have to say it in the negative because we can't outright say thank you for giving me all this stuff to do. But we mean it because we're, we're thankful for the opportunity to potentially succeed. So the male, because he's created farther away from his spiritual nature, has the greatest opportunity for growth. And therefore, he's given these mitzvahs because he has to refine himself. He has to control his animalistic drives. He has to connect to the number eight beyond the physical. But he can't say, straight out say thank you for that. But, he's, but essentially, the, a, a male who's holy is really holy. Because it took a lot of work to get there. All right? That's why we, we very much appreciate Sadiqim 
the like um, Avraham, the forefathers, they did incredible tasks for a male to do that is incredible. Requires a, a whole lot of work to get out of that animalistic mindset. But, but a female who's holy is a lot more intuitive. It's not as hard. Of course, there are female tzedekuses who are beyond incredible in terms of going above and beyond. They're not just nurturers. They give up of themselves for human be for other people. Like, want to read an amazing book? My wife is reading right now a book called Holy Woman. Uh, no, there's an amazing book called Holy Woman. Um, my wife's reading a different book called. Um, it's called. I think it's called Love and Chicken Soup or something like that. And it's about this Rebetzin who lived in Jerusalem who literally had an open house. And they would just, anyone who needed anything could come to their house at any time of the day or night. And literally, like, she would be woken up, she would be woken up in the middle of the night by some homeless person asking her to make her di make him dinner. And, like, <laughs> like there's, no, she, she, passed, she passed away a few years ago. My friend's mother-in-law, um, her name is Rebetzin Khanna. Machlis, I think. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Try. <laughs> I'll call the cops. No, uh, I wish I was on that level. I'm reading a book right now about someone named Rabbi Grossman. I recommend this book. Listen, Julia, this book is amazing. It's called Living Legends, written by a friend of mine, Nachman Seltzer. And it's about this, this rabbi who lives in northern Israel named Rabbi Israel Grossman. Uh, Israel David or Itcha David, Yitzhak David? I think Israel David Grossman who is, uh, was a, a Hasidic Jew from Meisharim, from the most insular religious part of Jerusalem. And after the Six-Day War, he was really inspired, and he decided he wanted to spend a year of his life just giving back and teaching uh, non-religious Jews about Judaism. So he just moved to the worst city in Israel, a crime-ridden city full of gangs and violence, and he, um, and he basically just moved into the city and started hanging out. Oh, it's called... Amuna with love and chicken soup. Faith with love and chicken soup. My son just brought me the book. <laughs> so, um, so Rabbi Grossman moved to this town and he started hanging out in a disco. This was in the 70s. And he became known as the disco rabbi. And he literally transformed the entire town. He adopted all of these, kid, these street kids and these gang members. And he turned their lives around. He opened up an orphanage. For hundreds and hundreds of kids he, he literally gives his life up for people unbelievable so you read stories like that you're like wow you know and, and a male a man and a woman both can reach those levels but um, when we're talking about regular people like us um, you know we we have to strive for it we have to strive for it but a woman is able to say thank you for making me according to your will because she is much closer to God's will and um, when a man is is a good guy, marry him. Ladies, if you find a good guy, marry him because they're very hard to find. <laughs> That's why most classes in in the Jewish world, like like um, like Jewish outreach classes, like Rage and things like this, it's mostly girls. You usually find maybe Rage is different. I don't know. My, a lot of times, yeah, we've. Yes. So anyway, um, I believe that is the message of Briss. And may we all be blessed to transcend our nature. We we're all given a, a package at birth, which is our DNA, our genetics, and our nurture, our early childhood experiences, 
We all have issues. Everyone has their negative qualities, whether it's anger, arrogance, selfishness, uh, lust, right? Gossip, laziness, insecurities. We've all got our stuff. There's no such thing as saying, Rabbi, that's just the way I am. I was made this way. I'm a lazy person. I have an anger issue. We are obligated to take the raw material and turn it into something better. And if we leave this world better than we were when we came in, then we've accomplished at least a part of the meaning and message of bris. And ultimately, the goal is to bring spirituality into physicality, to bring together the male and the female dimensions, to meet in 7.5, the union of the physical world with the spiritual world. And may I let us all say, Amen. Guys, wishing you all a beautiful Shabbos. Questions?